Episode of Black Op Radio. We, tonight we are speaking to Jen Abreu, who was uh, handling some affairs for Saran Saran. I think a lot of people already know that. And there was a a very disappointing parole meeting that we'd like to get some details with, which you were there. So, what can you tell me about what happened last week? Hi, Lynn. Well, thank you so much for having me back on the. Uh, the podcast. I really appreciate it. And um, I was um, in the uh, Sirhan Sirhan's March 1st, 2023 uh, parole hearing. And to say it was a sham, a disaster would be not doing it justice. Um, I'd like to start off, I guess, by saying this, and then we can unpack all of the nuances. It is traumatizing to watch corruption happen in real time in front of you and be powerless to stop it. And that is how, that was my takeaway. That is what I experienced. That is what I saw. That is what I heard. And um, I am, you know, here we are, you know, halfway now through the month of March. We are two weeks um, out from the hearing. And I'm still um, trying to process what happened. Uh, so I guess let me, um, begin with, whew, there are so many, there's so many different things here that are in play and I'm sure you and your listeners, um, will be extremely appreciative of, um, the content and, uh, you know, the play by play. So I originally back in end of August of 2021, I was um, called in to represent and be Paul Schrade's uh, victim advocate in Sirhan's parole hearing. 
in the state of California. Um, all victims and victims next of kin um, are allowed to be present in the offender's uh, parole hearing and are allowed to make a statement. So under Marcy's law, which is um, what is codified in the California Constitution under the victim's rights, um, obviously, you know, you can imagine that this um, law was uh, signed in based upon the fact that um, a lot of victims, you know, want to advocate um, for the um, perpetual incarceration of the of the offender. However, in Paul Schrade's case, because he was such a staunch supporter of restorative justice, um, he decided, you know, because he had forgave Sirhan for shooting him in the head. And Paul's stance always was, um, Sirhan may have shot me, but he did not shoot my friend Bob. And to his dying day, in November of 2022, um, that is what Paul's life's work was all about, was bringing um, daylight to the actual facts of the case. Um, so I was brought in in 2021 um, to represent and be Paul Schrade's victim advocate because I uh, run an organization here in Southern California called Redemption Row California, and we uh, provide assistance with people who are eligible um, for parole, and we help them in a year-long uh, correspondence course with their insight, empathy, and self-awareness. Sirhan, um, during COVID, reached out to us because program providers were not able to come inside the facilities. And he took the initiative to say, well, you know, if people can't come inside the prison, I need to find people who um, can help me, you know, um, to provide me with some sort of rehabilitation work. Um, and that's where he and I, um, our, you know, historical backgrounds cross paths. So after Paul passed in um, November of 2022, ultimately what that did is it put his only living successor um, in line to take that position. And that was his sister, Louise. So all of Paul's, you know, Paul's, uh, Paul was, you know, 98 years old when he died in November. So, um, you know, he doesn't have a lot of living um, relatives. He never had any children. Um, he did have um, siblings. Those siblings have all um, passed on, but um, he does have um his, his, his little sister, Louise. And so Louise, um, to take on the mantle of, uh, her brother's, you know, lifelong, um, activism registered with the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation as a victim's next of kin. And with that, she is allowed to have two speaking advocates at the offender's hearing. That would be Sir Hans. So I slid into that spot. However, um, I had attended Paul's 
um, celebration of life in December of 2022 in Los Angeles. It was a remarkable event. Lots of amazing people were there to celebrate Paul's uh, life's work um, in labor, human rights, uh, racial equality, and um, it was it was a really great event put on um, to um, highlight all of the um, the allyship that Paul had done throughout his lifetime. In um, in that event, Mr. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was present, and uh, he and uh, Paul. Uh, were friends, obviously, because of Paul's work and close affiliation with the uh, Robert F. Kennedy uh, family. And Robert Jr. and Paul have, you know, worked together um, a lot on Sir Han's um, innocence. At that meeting, um, or at that at Paul at that event, excuse me. Um, that was the first time I had uh, physically met Mr. Kennedy in person. We had exchanged emails previously, previously, and had talked on the phone uh, previously from the uh, Sirhan 2021 hearing. But um, this was the first time we had actually met face to face, and we had an opportunity to talk and discuss some ideas uh, that I had going into the 2023 hearing. And at that point in time, Mr. Kennedy, um, from that conversation, appointed me to be his victim advocate. And so I thought, well, great, this is a fantastic opportunity. Um, you know, uh, Paul's sister has two positions that she can, you know, we can help her fill. Um, with people who are closely affiliated to Sirhan and can, you know, testify about um, their firsthand knowledge of Sirhan and Paul's work. Um, but this actually gives me a, a really good opportunity to, um, instead of representing um, Paul's sister Louise, I can actually go in and um, have a bigger voice as Mr. Kennedy's um, victim victim advocate. And so that was the plan. And for several months, uh, Mr. Kennedy and I exchanged lots of communication discussing the strategy um, which we wanted to take this and how we were going to have this, you know, joint message going forward. Um, there was, you know, concerns about additional family members that would be um, attending Sir Han's uh, parole hearing, and you know, Mr. Kennedy was very transparent and his concern for those that did not see uh, the same restorative justice that we shared. Um, unfortunately, what ended up happening is. Um, at the 11th hour, if you will, uh, Mr. Kennedy reached out to me and said that he would not be attending Sir Hans' hearing. And so that left me without a vessel to um, testify 
to Sirhan's rehabilitation and the restorative justice work that he has done with the victims in his case. So fortunately, um, can I me, ask you one question? Just, yes, sir. Did, did you did you think that there was any pressure on Robert? I mean. And if you don't know, fine. I just thought right. Oh. It would be speculative. I, I mean, I, I can honestly say he he had just um, all he had told me in a very general sense was that his mother is um, very, very, very ill in you know critical condition, and that any sort of appearance um, by him would be received very negatively and that he did not want to put that on, um, you know, on his mother. And that was, I mean, and, and that's in very, very general terms. There was nothing specific about it. Okay. Okay. So as, as far as you know, then, you know, just one thing led to another and because of his, his mother's condition, health. right. Yes. That, um, right. He felt it was a bad idea to um, cause her any kind of emotional, you know, grief and re-traumatizing um, by his appearance in that hearing. And so from there, I kind of had to, you know, regroup and say, well, shoot, um, let me see if I can get a hold of um, my contacts inside the prison in in. CDCR, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and see if I can slide back in and be an advocate for Paul's sister, Louise. They said, yes, not a problem. And so I just had to, you know, I guess pivot a little bit um, from what I was going to say and reconstruct it slightly. And everything was fine. Um, you know, Sirhan and I were in close communication at the time. I did not want to, I, I didn't, I didn't tell him. I did not tell him that um, Robert Jr. was not going to be present because um, that would have, you know, really, that would have crushed him. That would have broken his heart because I know he does um, rely a lot on his relationship with Robert Jr., um, being that he is the only one out of the family who came to come see him, spent time with him, and they were able to, you know, really unpack a lot of generational harm and trauma and discuss things. And so the fact that Robert Jr. was not going to be present, I, I knew that that was going to upset him greatly. And I did not want to, as we say in prison language, knock him off his square and um, have him, you know, kind of focus on that rather than the other, you know, things that he needed to, um, you know, pay closer attention to. So um, I just kept going as if everything was fine and dandy. And I believe um, Sirhan's attorney, Angela Berry, went and spent the afternoon with Sirhan the day before. Um, his hearing was March 1st, so that was a Wednesday. So she spent Tuesday afternoon with him. And I believe she's the one who told him that Robert was not going to be present at the hearing. And so 
aside from that, I had spent some time, you know, discussing the facts of the case and the restorative justice work that Paul had done over his, you know, 40 plus years um, in trying to advocate for Sirhan's release with his sister. Um, I, you know, I, I discussed, you know, the the time that Paul invited me to his house uh, with Sirhan's brother, Munir, and we spent the weekend all together, these two elderly men who have suffered great trauma in their own right, um, jointly, and um, just watching these two older men in their twilight years um, discuss the harm and trauma that they've endured because of this dynamic situation. Um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with Sirhan's brother and I had spent a lot of time with Paul and to watch these two men from extremely different backgrounds, um, and demographic come together um, to right the wrongs was really a honor and a privilege that I will never, ever have again. Um, but watching them do that and listening to those conversations was, um, was life changing, you know, and, um, it was it, and that story needs to be told. And that was my whole point in going forward with Paul's sister is we need to show how important it was for Paul to have this story be told. And, um, you know, regardless, and this is important, but regardless if Paul believed that Sirhan did or did not shoot Robert Kennedy. The fact of the matter is, is that Paul forgave Sirhan for shooting him and had this, you know, before restorative justice was even a buzzword, before people, before it was even a mainstream thing to discuss, Paul was already practicing this. Paul was already understanding that we cannot operate on this binary good versus evil punitive system. People deserve to have an opportunity to demonstrate that they are not a unreasonable risk to society if they have been rehabilitated. And that, I think, is a lot of, you know, the time that Paul spent around um, civil rights activists, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta. And I really believe that, you know, Paul weaponizing his whiteness, if you will, um, understood that. And, and he was, Paul took a lot of arrows, you know, um, even some of his own family members just really, um, talked bad about him and how could he, you know, have this, uh, forgiveness, you know, when he took, you know, a bullet in the head and this, this event that took place in 1968 changed, you know, the trajectory of the American zeitgeist. 
And so I, I wanted to, um, do Paul a great honor by explaining this work in this moment in time through the auspice of being his sister's victim advocate and also having the other side of it by working closely with Sirhan by being his rehabilitation provider. And so um, this was, you know, a very unique situation that I was in and something that I definitely um, was willing to step up and do um, just for all parties um, involved. So going back to that morning, um, 8.30 is when the hearing began. And by 8.40, the commissioner and the deputy commissioner, um, who were um, completely different from the 2021 um, panel, um, they had done a full roll call when they um, announced uh, were taking role for, you know, this is on a Microsoft Teams um, platform and everybody has their camera off except for the camera that is on Sirhan and the camera that is on the commissioner and the deputy commissioner. And so the commissioner is at, you know, doing this attendance call for all of the people who have registered to be there. And he gets to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And it's a no call, no show. He gets to Douglas Kennedy. No call, no show. He had also registered just as he had done in 2021. Douglas is nowhere to be seen or heard. Now, two people who were there who have not been present in any other previous Sirhan hearings was Carrie Kennedy and Christopher Kennedy. Now, if you and your listeners want to go back, you can type in Carrie and Chris Kennedy and Sirhan, and you will see this CBS interview that they did after Sirhan was found suitable for parole in 2021 and before Governor Newsom made his um, statement of facts denying Sirhan his parole. And so these two are now in the hearing. They've never been there before. In addition to their presence, uh, the Kennedy family hired Trump lawyers. And uh, these, Pat Cipollone, who was one of Trump's White House chief counsels has is part is part of a firm in Los Angeles, and um, the other partners in that firm were hired by um, the by Ethel Kennedy and represented every Kennedy um, child minus Kathleen Douglas and Robert Jr. They were let their names were left off of the representation. Um, so they were there. There were several attorneys that were there um, from this law firm to represent Ethel at all. And 
So that is who um, Angela Berry and I had to um, go up against in Sirhan's hearing. So by 8.45, everybody realizes that the two people who give great weight into the uh, Sirhan hearing, Douglas and Robert, are no call, no shows. And the two people who spearhead the movement um, for revenge and hate are Carrie and Chris. And they're Trump lawyers. So... It is now 9.30 in the morning. Um, well, actually, I should probably back up a little bit. Um, I would say by almost 9 o'clock, the commissioner of the parole board, Commissioner Garcia, has now spent a good solid 10, 15 minutes, um, you know, explaining, if you will, you know, the ground rules of what a parole hearing is and what it is not. Most importantly, it is not about to relitigate the facts of the case. This is not a courtroom. This is not, we are not going to go over details. We are not going to rehash anything about the actual case itself. We are here to discuss the inmates insight um, from the controlling case and um, where he is at today. From there, for the next 45 minutes, Commissioner Garcia goes on to relitigate the case. This was so disturbing to watch after he had just said, we are not here to do this. And then he goes and does the exact opposite. Mind you, this is not a court. This is not a trial court. This is a parole hearing. Sirhan's lawyer cannot object to anything because there's different rules in a parole hearing than there is a court. And they have Sirhan crying. They have him stammering. They have him completely confused. They're putting words in his mouth. It is an absolute miscarriage of justice that I am sitting there watching. At 9.30, one hour after the hearing has began, the Associated Press is already putting out articles that Sirhan has been denied parole. I find that completely interesting. Because the decision for Sirhan to be denied did not come until 25 minutes after 12. So how is the Associated Press, one hour into the hearing, already putting out articles that he's been denied? That, like I said at the very beginning of this, to say this was a sham would be not giving it justice. Um, my landlord... Just to kind of give this some context, my landlord, who knows, you know, um, what I do, has been in my apartment many times to do, you know, minor repairs and seize the material I have all over my house, um, and you know, is 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 you know well informed on um, everything that I do. Um, text me 
shortly after 9.30 and says, I'm sorry to hear about Sirhan. And I thought, what? I'm looking at him on camera. What do you mean you're sorry to hear about him? He's fine. I'm looking at him right now. Why, why, why are you sorry? You know, so I text him and I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, I heard he was denied parole. And I said, that's interesting because we are not even close to a deliberation. We're still in the very beginning part of his hearing at this point. I haven't even given my statement. Where are you hearing this? And he said, Fox News. I thought, well, that's super interesting. Um, so it was already out. And so, you know, Angela and I are going through this hearing and it is, I, 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 I could not believe some of the questions that they were asking him. I mean, they are literally hanging their hat on the fact instead of a mitigating um, factor, which would be his, um, trauma as a child growing up in a war-torn Palestine, they focus on his, you know, this, this internal hate that he has for Israel. And also, um, which this was the, probably the most disturbing thing for me is listening to the commissioner and the deputy commissioner in real time try and change his conviction. And what I mean by that is they were leading him down a path to admit that his crime was a political assassination. Now, mind you, Sirhan was convicted of murder one and five attempts or four, five attempts. Yeah. And so even with those charges, he has done all of that time. There was no such thing as a political assassination in the penal code at that time. Okay. And yet the commissioner and the deputy commissioner are doing their damnedest to try and get him to admit that the crime that he committed was a political assassination. And he's saying, you know, I don't, I don't know what you're trying to get at. That's not what this was. And they said, well, do you, <laughs> they said, well, do you know what political violence is? And he said, yeah, I watched January 6th on TV. <laughs> that was actually kind of a funny moment. Um, but, you know, it was just, it was, they, they in real time were trying to change an actual um, conviction into something that it wasn't. And so I would just say, if anybody that's listening sees anything about Sirhan admitting that he committed a political assassination, that is completely untrue. He did not. These are the words that the commissioner and the deputy commissioner were trying to force feed him. Um, and that was really, it, it was disgusting. It was absolutely disgusting what they were doing. Um, I, you know, in my line of work, I read parole transcripts from um, guys who have gone to board, whether they have been found suitable or they have been given a denial. And I have never, ever in the hundreds of parole transcripts that I have read, never, ever seen or, or excuse me, I've never read a line of questioning um, trying to change the actual conviction. 
um, in real time that they that they did for Sirhan. Um, so, um, you know, the line of questioning that he was asked in 2021 um, was very much what a parole hearing is all about. Um, this time around, it was not that. They went completely rogue, completely off script. And it was obvious that this was not, um, we knew, we knew this was, this was going to be a denial, I think probably within the first 30 minutes of this hearing. And Angela has no way to communicate to me and I have no way to communicate to her in this moment in time, but um, I could just tell, like, she's looking in the camera. I can tell by your body language and this was not going well. Um, so then it comes time for victim impact statements. Part of the ground rules that the commissioner had laid out in the very first half of the hearing is, um, pretty, you know, pretty generic. And he said, you know, um, when we come, when it comes time for victim impact statements, um, you must always address the panel and never the individual, right? So if you have something that you have written and you have addressed the offender or the victim, you know, this goes both ways, um, you know, specifically change it now because I won't tolerate it. Um, you need to be addressing the panel. And those who, you know, know of these rules already have done that. Those that don't um, feel like they can, you know, skirt around this. So here we are with Carrie Kennedy and she gets on camera and, you know, she's got pages and pages and pages and pages of her victim impact statement. She is specifically addressing Sirhan you know, saying you this, you did that, you did this, and, um, you know, which she's not supposed to do. Um, she did actually address her hypocrisy, which is glaring. The fact that she, you know, sits at a point of privilege on the Robert F. Kennedy Humanitarian Foundation. And if you go to that website, one of the first tabs on that website is mass incarceration. Um, and she said, oh, I know, and I'm paraphrasing at this point, the transcripts I will make available to you the day that they come out so you can read her statement ver uh, verbatim. But for now, I'm paraphrasing, and it was along the lines of, you know, I know people will say that, you know, it's hypocritical for me to advocate for, you know, um, you know, decarceration and the problem that we have with mass incarceration um, and people of color that are system impacted. However, I will, you know, turn, do a 180 against Sirhan. Well, yeah, Carrie, you are a hypocrite because you don't get to cherry pick your activism. That's not how activism works. And yet she continued to say, but, you know, um, I, you know, that Sirhan has not 
um, demonstrated insight, which is untrue because that is how he was found suitable for parole last time was because of his insight. Um, and she, it was just fallacy after fallacy, after fallacy, after false equivalency, after straw man's red herrings. I mean, she was so full of fallacies. It would have made any, you know, logic, uh, uh, philosophy professor just rotate their head. Um, she was full of bitterness, hate and revenge. And it was just, every word was just absolutely filled with hate. Um, definitely not demonstrative of what an activist and an ally um, in this fight is. It was um, quite the antithesis. And then we had Chris Kennedy, who came on and doubled down on the Kennedy hypocrisy of their social justice persona. And um, I also found it interesting because, you know, in these hearings, you are not supposed to, the person that is on camera, um, unless it is, um, and, well, how do I say this? Unless you're a lawyer and you're representing a member, a, a victim or victims next of kin, there's, there should be uh, nobody allowed in the room or, um, you know, additionally on camera with you. And I'm sitting there watching Chris Kennedy getting papers handed to him from someone off camera that he's reading. So somebody was there typing and, and feeding him statement papers to read. And I thought, well, that's interesting because nobody else can have somebody um, in the room with them. And if the commissioners um, see that happening, they'll shut the whole hearing down. But here we are. Chris Kennedy gets a pass literally watching him getting papers handed to him and reading, um, you know, these lawyer typed, um, narratives, um, you know, full of hate, full of vengeance, uh, nothing, you know, we haven't heard before from that family. Um, and, um, so then I decided that I was done you know, listening to this. And that's when I, you know, said, Commissioner, you know, um, what about uh, Louise Duff, Paul Strade's sister? We are her victim advocates. We need a chance to speak. Um, and so a colleague of mine who is a professor at UCLA, Dr. Kara Plotchik, um, who was part of a special envoy with me and a few other of um, the Redemption Row team um, had um, gone, you know, ha she had a first person uh, narrative of watching Sirhan's brother and Paul at his home that weekend. And so she discussed about, you know, watching Paul do harm reduction you know, with Sirhan's brother and his lifelong commitment to social and restorative justice. Um, and then I spoke and I hit on all of Sirhan's rehabilitative work and um, also, you know, the restorative justice work that he had uh, done by reaching out to the victims. And even though Douglas and Robert Jr. were not present, I did thread in their 
statements from the 2021 hearing. And I was able to quote them and get that on the record that even though that they weren't there, this is, there has been no change in their statement going forward. So I was able to kind of rely um, a lot on their past statements. Um, and then after that is um, when the Trump lawyers got on and really just did a dog and pony show of, um, you know, just this revenge talk. And um, it was really, it was really hard to hear. In fact, at one point in time, Eric George, which is a partner at the Pat Cipollone law firm, um, yelled at Angela, like literally yelled at her on camera. Um, Sirhan and Angela were talking, um, you know, they're on camera inside the prison. Everybody else is in their respective places, you know, in their office or their home or wherever. And, um, Angela and Sirhan were kind of, you know, ear to ear talking about something. And, um, I think Angela had kind of like nodded her head, um, in affirmation of whatever, you know, Sirhan was telling her. And, um, this Trump lawyer just went off the rails and yelled at her and said, I don't think any of this is funny. Why are you laughing? And every, you know, and Angela said, excuse me, like, what are you talking about? Nobody's laughing. And, you know, it was just this, this, like, he wanted to get on the record, you know, in the, in the, in the, you know, transcription that there was like, you know, some sort of mocking of this entire um, proceeding, you know, that is not what I watched it in real time. You know, there was no laughter about anything. Um, and so um, Eric George went on, you know, this unsubstantiated tirade trying to, you know, back up the commissioner and the deputy commissioner on their new finding of, you know, political assassination, which he was never convicted on. And, um, you know, just talking about, you know, how the weight of the world, you know, should be carried by Sirhan and how the, um, actually, I believe it was Carrie and Chris in their statements, um, discussing how, you know, the conspiracy theorists, you know, and how dumb, you know, these people are, and we are a, um, you know, detriment, irreparable harm to the nation, anybody that questions the obvious, you know, pretty much making anybody who questions the, you know, the police um, and government story as being anti-American, which I thought was like, this is gaslighting if I've ever heard it. Um, and so, you know, they deliberated, they left at 1145 by 1215, they were back and they said that they were going to deny him for parole because he lacks the insight that he needs. Um, and they find him to be a reasonable risk to society if he were to be released. They gave him a three-year denial I am not a lawyer, so I want to just kind of preface that, but I do hang out with quite a few, and from the people who do know um, parole law have told me is that he will be eligible to petition for early parole in about 13 to 15 months, 
And so that is the time clock that I am working off of right now. I have a question. You've I have an mentioned, <laughs> You've mentioned this um, political assassination. Yes. Can you give me the ramifications of what's the difference between him being charged with murder or, or political assassination? Right. So, uh, again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know penal code, but I do know political assassination is actually now a charge. Um, so we can look to the case of um, the Armenian assassin, which was back in the 80s. Um, Sassoonian, I believe, was his name. And he um killed a Turkish diplomat in Los Angeles um, in his car, shot him in the head, and he was charged with a political assassination. How And, and just to kind of give it some context is um, Hamburg, um, Sass, I think his name was Hamburg Sassoonian, and he um, did 40 years in the California prison system for... Um, a political assassination, killing this Turkish diplomat and was found suitable by the parole board of California. Governor Newsom reversed it. And then judge Ryan in the fourth district, um, reversed it, reversed, uh, Newsom's, um, findings. And so Sassoonian was, um, released from prison and he was deported um, and he is living his life, you know, back in his home country. Um, so just to kind of like, just understand that, like there is a charge now after the Kennedy assassination in 1968, there is now on the books a charge of political assassination. But Sirhan was never convicted of that. What? How does that differ than murder one? It carries a greater weight, right? And they're trying to apply that retroactively, not in a court of law, but just linguistically, which is not a thing at all. And if you were to take, if you were to take Sirhan's charges right now, okay, I have guys I work with all the time, active gang members who have shot and killed numerous people, okay, and, and harmed other people in the process of that. And they have been released. But yet when we look at Sirhan, it's different, even though the charges are the, exactly the same. So there, the 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 fix is in trying to get a new charge, not legally, um, but just in the court of public opinion. And you will see this all the time. Media will try and reconstruct his charges. He is a political assassin. He is a terrorist. Okay, he is not. That's never been a thing. And to, to add this on and change his original charges is absolutely uh, uh, just incomprehensible. I, I, I literally cannot understand how this is allowed to happen. And yet it does. And then the second question I have was about this legal team that uh, the other Kennedy members had. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of any funding or, yes. or 
Okay, can you address that? Because all I know is that there was a quarter of a million dollars paid to this law firm to put this together. $250,000 came from the Kennedys getting some funding to hire these guys. Yes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, when I heard of this that afternoon and, you know, the next day and uh, how shocked you must have been, I kind of thought to myself, well, you know, welcome to our world because year after year we have been going through this and I'm a little more just so jaded. It doesn't surprise me. And yet I heard a lot of optimism this time, you know, and then to think of the I don't know what the right word is, but the poverty of the Kennedy family not <laughs> to have investigated that even if they talked to Thomas Noguchi and said, well, you know, there's powder burns on the, you know, so whoever killed your, you know, father, your uncle, whatever, you know, like who, Robert Kennedy, you know, it wasn't Saran. Now, you know, whatever the charges, he's there, he's a patsy, he's complicit, he's the diversion, you know, and if he needs a new trial for that, Fair enough. But like you mentioned, these parole hearings are not for that at all. They're not, you're not to bring up the trial, never mind change the, the charge right. or conviction. Right? So right. Exactly. And, you know, just to kind of speak on that, though, I can tell you this. Psychologically, if the remainder of the Kennedy family were to do at the very minimum what Robert Jr. has done, by looking at the evidence and reading just one piece of paper, right? That puts them in a very interesting position. And what that does is they must then either acknowledge that they have been wrong this entire time and that they have advocated against an innocent man in prison and also that their entire reality and their entire lives are based on a lie. And that in itself creates a whole nother issue, right? And so then they're forced with this dichotomy. Either they acknowledge that they have been on the wrong side and then they're forced to do something about it because once you know and you don't do anything about it you become complicit in it and so if they did something against it now they're going to have to fight the government that they so wholly hold allegiance to and that will never happen this family is so entrenched into the the imprint of who the U.S. is, that they can never, it's their identity. Without this tragedy, nobody knows who Carrie or Chris Kennedy is, right? This is their entire identity they have built off of this trauma. And so, you know, it's, it, it, of course they want to be the ostrich with their head in the sand because then they can just say, you know what? I'm good. 
I'm good. I can just, you know, keep on with what I'm doing. I won't have to answer the call on these very heady, complex questions. And ultimately what they're doing. But the fact they they got some fundraising for this, they didn't, you know. I mean, I, I mean, like I said, I, I don't know. I just told, I was just told by people super close to the source that there was over a quarter of a million dollars that was paid. I don't know where the funding came from, if they all pulled in, you know, their piggy banks or if an outside outside source came in. Who knows? I don't know. Doesn't matter. The end result was still the end result. Right. And, you know, here you have people who, you know, pat themselves on the back for being these, you know, staunch social justice, you know, warriors. And at the same time, they are literally the last people that should be considered an ally in anything. Well, yeah, I can only imagine. Actually, I can't imagine what it was like for you to sit there and for Saron and for uh, the other legal team, uh, you know, just to to witness this. I mean, first of all, he was granted parole, finally. Right. right. And this, I was hoping it was going to be a reflection of that the governor didn't, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't have made this political and overturned it. He was eligible for, for parole, and that's that. Right. So, um, you know, later on that evening, so Wednesday evening, Sirhan called me and just want to like put into perspective, like this is a man who will be 79 years old on the 18th of this month. Okay. And he has spent 55 years in prison on the night that, or the day that he was denied parole after already being found suitable for parole previously, uh, he called me to see how I was doing. And, you know, that will never escape me, that he was more concerned about my emotional state, right, than his. He is, in his twilight years, his brother, you know, has severe ailing health, and all he wants to do is get home and care for his brother, you know, and he's calling me to see how I'm doing. He was able to get two phone calls in. So we spent a good 30 minutes on the phone and I told him about the AP article coming out at 930. I told him about my landlord texting me um, and he was just you know, oh my gosh. He's like, I knew something was wrong. You know, as soon as they were starting to go over asking me questions about this, that, and everything else with the case. And he's like, I knew, I knew something was fishy. And I said, you know, of course, um, I said, you know, I don't know if this was, you know, predetermined, I don't know if the commissioner and the deputy commissioner were compromised. I don't know if there was pressure put on the panel by the governor's office or these Trump lawyers. Who knows? It could be, you know, none of these things are diametrically opposed to one another. They can all happen simultaneously, right? Um, but we know that we are not dealing with just your average parole hearing. You're not just an average person, even though he is like the most average person. Um, so, you know, I, I, 
he and I were talking about, you know, what had occurred that day. And he said something to me that, you know, I, I had mentioned it to um, his lawyer uh, later on that. Well, later on, I think it was the next day. But um, Sarhan said this to me. He said, do you think it's crazy to think that I was granted parole in 2021 to prove a point that I'm not a political prisoner? And that really set me back in my chair. And I said, you know what? I think you're onto something. You may be right. You may be right. I think there is a very good chance that you were granted parole knowing that the governor was going to deny it and that you would be denied every other subsequent hearing going forward just to prove that the parole board is not biased. That was a gimme. I said, you know what? I will never know, but um, I don't think you're crazy for thinking that. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned that to his lawyer and I said, you know, what do you think about this? And she said, I, you know, she had the same kind of response that I did. Like, we'll never know, um, but it's not far off. You know, we, it's pretty logical that that would be, um, you know, the system that was set up. Now, the biggest legal questions that come into mind um, that we're still trying to, you know, get answers for, and again, not a lawyer, and I leave the lawyering up to the lawyers, um, but something that, you know, is, we have to consider is, what does this denial do for his habeas corpus that we filed in the court after his, after Newsom denied his uh, parole? Because we still have that in the court. Um, and so does this denial, um, help hurt? Like what, what does this do with the habeas corpus? Um, you know, if, um, Sirhan goes to board again, um, in, you know, say 18 months and he is given a grant of parole, does this now, this now makes the denial look like the outlier, right? You have two grants and a denial. Like where does all of this come into play? Um, there's a lot of what ifs that I don't have the answers to, but people much smarter than me are getting those, you know, answers. And, um, you know, like I said, I work the rehabilitation side, they work the legal side. Um, and, you know, once in a great while, you know, we, we come together and have these great meetings and we share information, but, um, I kind of let them do their stuff and they let me do my stuff. Um, but I know that Sirhan and I, uh, you know, in our half hour conversation from the first, um, we've put together a very hyper aggressive, uh, rehabilitation plan. And that's going to look like, um, a lot of, uh, me bringing in people to talk to him, um, that are, you know, professionals in their specific field. And so I'm in the process of, putting together a very short list of people who can um, join me into spending some hours with him in prison talking about specific subjects. Um, I have, you know, earned, you know, his trust 
And um, he knows that I'm not going to be bringing somebody into him that, you know, is solely there to profit off of his trauma um, and has an honest um, outlook on his one rehabilitation and two, his freedom. So I'm working with a lot of um, um, universities, colleges, um, clinical psychologists, uh, licensed clinical social workers um, that would be able to have that um, outlook and provide him uh, greater service um, in the areas that he needs to work on to uh, demonstrate um, the things that the board would like for him to be able to articulate. You know, the thing with parole boards is this. With every denial and this is regardless of Sirhan, but this is with all my clients, is when you get a denial from the board and you finally get those transcripts, right, um, from your from your parole board hearing, I always tell these guys, this: these are the answers in the back of the book, right? So you just went through this crazy, you know, interview process. And oftentimes, you know, we're so caught up in the moment that we're not going to remember, you know, and kind of, you know, file away all of this information and the questions that they ask. So the transcripts really are so crucial into understanding um, how you go forward in your next hearing. And so once those are available, um, I will end up doing a full parole board, you know, analysis on his, um, on his hearing. He and I will go over every question they asked him and we're going to unpack everything. Like I said, I'm bringing in lots of other different people to meet with him that are going to be doing the same. Um, and we're going to just be doing a lot of, you know, Monday morning, you know, armchair quarterback type yeah. uh, stuff with him. I just don't quite understand it. How old is he right now? Right now, today, Sir Ham is 78 years old. But the effort was made that he would be a um, uh, a problem for, to society. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, well, what's the yes. proper term for that? These because the proper term yeah. that they use is that he would be a reasonable risk to society. Yeah. Right after, mind you, um, you know, two years before he was an unreasonable risk to society, and nothing has changed. Right. And also, not a, not a damn he, thing has changed. Right. And didn't he make the offer to actually go back to his home homeland? He did. Know? He did. So and he said, look, you know, if, if it means anything, I will leave the country then. He did. And that actually was brought up by one of the uh, Trump lawyers. And he said that that was actually like he was using that as a negative, saying that no way um, should that be even considered as a mitigation point because in order to be considered to be um, deported, um, he would have to have um, some sort of legal filings um, with the Jordanian consulate or whatever. Yet, mind you, I'm sitting here looking at a document. He has an ice hold on him from 2013. So Anytime there's an ice hold on somebody, they're getting like nine and a half times out of 10, they're getting deported back to the original country they came from. So the fact that they were trying to use this as a, as a negative and say that, um, you know, 
we can't use this as a med- mitigation point because he has to file all of these, you know, p- all this paperwork. Well, we don't have to because Homeland Security has already done it for us, right? Um, they're already saying he, um, you know, came to the U.S. Um, illegally, which is also untrue because that he was a minor and he came here with his mother and they were asylum seekers and they were all given um, U.S. citizenship. So there's also that, right? So the fact that he, that Homeland Security wants to deport him when he's an American citizen is questionable. Well, I mean, just, just the fact that he and his brother, and you said that Minier? Munier, Munier, yes. Yeah, is not in good health? Not in good health. No, he's not. He's in very poor health. Um, he has like, his eyesight is virtually non-existent. It's just, it's a very sad state of affairs. And, you know, he's just, all Sirhan wants to do is go home and take care of his brother until their dying days. Like, that's it. They just, he just, that's it. You know, Lynn, I actually drove to Pasadena. Um, This was a few months ago. And I spent the day with Munir. And he and I went door to door in their neighborhood. I knocked on every door up and down that street, um, asking um, neighbors to um, see if they, one, if they knew who their neighbor was, right, and that he was eligible for parole and that he would ultimately, if found suitable for parole, be coming back to the neighborhood and would they be okay with that, right? Um, And I was getting signatures from neighbors left and right, people who live right next door, people who live across the street, people down the street, signing these petitions. We turned those all into the board. Nobody in his neighborhood, like, cares that this 80-year-old man would be living in in his family home since 1963, right? Or, excuse me, 1958 is when I think they bought the home. Um, and everybody on the, on the block is like, they're cool with it. Most of those people weren't even alive when this thing happened. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, the neighborhood doesn't care. Um, (laughs) this is a great story. I'm going to share this and I'll probably get in trouble for it, but I don't care anymore. Um, nobody knows this story, but, um, so Sir Heron was found eligible for parole um, August 27th of 2021. About a month later, um, there was um, an individual who knocked on the door at Munir's house and wanted, um, identified themselves as, you know, a, a parole agent and that... Um, they were there to do a walkthrough of the home, you know, just for safety and security and do all this documentation. Um, and so, uh, you know, Munir was like, okay, well, this kind of checks out. And, you know, they got a, um, they got a, um, you know, he got a business card from this person, whatever. And the person came through and um, was going in and out of every single bedroom, garage, you know, backyard, whatever. Um, Never took any pictures, but I guess was sketching kind of like, I guess, floor plans or whatever. Um, And that was the end of it. 
pretty unremarkable. Um, and so I thought, well, you know what I should do now? This happened in 2021. Um, so I asked Munir when I went up there a couple months ago to do the, you know, neighborhood, you know, knocking on doors. I said, hey, do you still have that card from that uh, parole agent that did the walkthrough of your house? I'd like to get a hold of this person um, to see if maybe we can get a letter right from the parole agency um, stating that, um, you know, the house was, you know, reasonable for him to come home to. Okay. He was like, yeah, here it is. So I took a picture of the card front and back, whatever. Um, I don't know, a couple days later, I called, um, the parole department, um, in the Pasadena area and asked for this person whose name was on the card. And they said, uh, that person hasn't worked here in years. I said, what? This person was at my friend's house like two years ago. I, like years is in two years ago or years, years, years. And they said, no, he retired years and years ago. So that's interesting. Can I talk to a supervising officer? So they patched me through and I talked to a supervisor and I said, hey, I'm kind of weird, but uh, I'm trying to locate this person that came to my friend's house to do a walkthrough. And I'm representing, you know, the person who's in, in custody. And I want to make sure that the walkthrough um, was documented. And I'm just trying to get a letter from your department saying that, you know, they did the walkthrough and everything was fine. They... I gave them Sirhan's CDCR number because that's how everything is filed. There was nothing documented that there was ever a parole agent that had gone out to the house to do a walkthrough. And I said, well, I'm looking at the business card that was handed to the brother who owns the home. And they said that person hasn't worked for this department in years and years and years ago. Very strange. Yeah. Very strange. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like I said, there's just, um, <laughs> does this case continue to give us surprises at every turn? Of course, you know, 55 years later. Um, this is when we're looking at the depth of it and we're looking at, you know, the the years of these assassinations, one thing that Sirhan has managed to do throughout all of these years is stay alive. Everyone else has died, right? Um, we have, um, you know, we know what happened to Oswald um, and James Earl Ray, right? And so Sirhan is you know, the only one who was not killed and understand like there's been plenty of attempts on his life. You know, um, he had his throat slit in 2019 and could have died really, really easily. Um, if it wasn't for his, you know, complex, you know, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder where he becomes completely disassociative in, you know, situations of violence, he was able actually to remain extremely calm. If he were to have stood up quickly and ran for medical, he would have bled out and died before he would have ever hit 
um, any kind of medical personnel. He was able to just, you know, completely disassociate and wait for the ambulance to come to him and remain seated. Right. So there's been plenty of, you know, attempts on his life. Um, he has been completely traumatized throughout his incarceration. Imagine living in a cell right next to Charlie Manson for years and listening, you know, to Charlie go on, um, for years and years and years. And, um, you know, he, he has been, he, he is a victim and I don't mean that in necessarily the Kennedy situation, but he's a victim from, you know, American imperialism and, and war, you know, and, you know, how we treat people when they come to the U.S. after experiencing these things. And well, I mean, you, you know, you can, if you take a side of the case that is favorable to, you know, the position that he was a patsy, that he had been hypno-programmed yes. to show up there just to pull out a gun and, and somebody uh, took him for a target practice that afternoon. I mean, the mm-hmm. whole, the whole, whole MKUltra. Yes. So we're at the whole case. We don't have to go through the whole case. But, I mean, you just wish somebody in the Kennedy family would have done that. And or at least I, I don't even know just how to how to how to I, I, listen. Uh, something and, and you and I are on the same team. Like I I absolutely believe that Sirhan was a patsy. I I know this man. I have known this man for years now. We work very closely together. I'm very close with his family and um i have done my due diligence with the research um i'm a very i'm a i'm a huge skeptic okay um you cannot put a sign on the wall that says wet paint without me going up and touching it because i won't believe you i have to go experience it myself i was asked to come clean out paul schrade's home after he died i was sitting on paul schrade's bedroom floor within 48 hours after he had passed away in that room and i'm sitting on the floor of his bedroom going through kennedy assassination documents paul had asked that i go up and help with those efforts i have gone through every single piece of paper that paul ever curated on this case and i have seen things that um, are remarkable. I've seen things that I've already, you know, that are already in the public, you know, network um, available to everybody. Um, I've been in, I have Paul, <laughs> Paul printed every email he ever got. As you can imagine, <laughs> these are columns of paper as tall as a kindergartner all over his home, right? I had to go through every single one of these pieces of paper and sort them. And I was privy to a lot of personal information between him and some of these Kennedy family members and Paul's pursuit of trying to get them to look at the actual evidence. And to say that I was heartbroken of the way that the Kennedy family treated Paul is an understatement because they refuse to do it because exactly what I said earlier, they know if they do, they're forced with one of two things. Either they become complicit in it by not doing anything or they have to acknowledge that they're, that they've been wrong period. 
And, you know, something I will say, um, a, what was it, two days, so Sirhan's hearing was Wednesday the 1st. I believe on the 3rd, Friday the 3rd, I could be wrong, but it was sometime during that week. Um, there were lots of news articles that were coming out that Robert Jr. was making public appearances at several colleges and saying that he's seriously considering running for the presidency. And I can't help but think perhaps maybe that's why he did not attend the hearing. It wasn't about his mother. It was about his own political trajectory. Steve Bannon is on a podcast and was talking about it that day. That Robert Kennedy Jr. ought to run on the GOP ticket for the presidency. And I just thought, this is extremely interesting. Here we have Gavin Newsom and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who are both deciding to perhaps run for the presidency and will be running on a campaign to tell everybody that they are pro-prison reform while turning their back on Sirhan. And people will believe it. Anyway. Just an observation, but those articles are um, definitely, um, you can Google Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and uh, presidency, and uh, he's making those statements. That's uh, very sobering. It is. And, you know, again, you know, this is just part of the, what America does, you know, and say, you know, the left hand and the right hand and they may be working together and they may not know what the other is doing, but damn it at the end. Um, it's always, you know, the marginalized people that are getting hurt. And that was apparent in this hearing. It was definitely power and privilege over truth and justice. And it was really heartbreaking to see, um, to be on the side that um, is truth and justice and watch the corruption occur in front of you and not be able to stop it. All right, Jen, thank you so much for sharing time with me tonight and the listeners that uh, gave insight to what was going on there. You're welcome. Um, man. Uh, thank you. Email me if there's anything new in the, in the meantime, I'll, I'll keep checking with you for uh, what, the, what the different situations are, but uh of course. Yeah. Of course. You're welcome. And um, as soon as those transcripts are available, the day they um, release them, I will um, send them on your way so you can go through the entire thing. Okay, sure. Maybe we'll can discuss them, you know, after we've gone through a bit. Of course. All right. Thank you to you, Lynn, and your listeners. And um, all right. Be safe, everybody. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Lynn. Bye-bye.